My name is Greg. I'm the Youth and Children's Director here at Sunrise, and I get to be a part of the preaching team as well, and so I'm excited to be able to share with you guys today. Uh, we are continuing on with our, uh, our uh, journey through Joel, and uh, before we get too far into that, though, uh, we want to dismiss our children for children in worship, and so that's for ages three years old up to fifth grade. Uh, we got two classes for them, as well as we have our nursery as well. So if you have a little one uh, who's um, zero to two, uh, they have two awesome workers back there uh, helping out there as well. So um, just something for everyone here. So we're excited for that. Well, like I said, we are continuing our journey through Joel, the uh, minor prophet of Joel. And that term, minor prophet, sometimes we hear that and we might think, oh, he's not important, right? Like minor, and is, well, why are we even paying attention to it? Well, minor, that just simply just means the book size. Uh, that's a good way to remember. So his, his book is one of the smaller books of the, the prophets, and then the, the major prophets are the ones who just kept writing and writing and writing. And so that's a good way to remember it. And so not any less significant, um, just if you're not someone who likes to read, Joel's your guy. Um, and so uh, he is three chapters in his book, uh, but it can be broken up into four different sections in a sense. And so uh, we're kind of doing that through our, our sermons. Russ has preached now um, two times through Joel, and uh, I'm going to hit up this third time. And you'll notice that things are a bit different uh, through this next section. And so uh, kind of what Russ preached about last week as we were exploring uh, the beginning of chapter 2 was this idea in chapter 1 as well, was this, this, this main thing that Joel's really saying to to the people, which is repent, turn back, turn back to God, stop going the direction you were going and come back to the Lord. And in fact, I want to just piggyback on something that Russ read last week, and that is verses uh, 12 and 14 of chapter two. And this is what it says. This is uh, even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning, rend your heart, not your garments, return to the Lord, your God. For he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. Who knows? He may turn and relent and leave behind a blessing, grain offering and drink offerings for the Lord your God. So the call is to repent, to turn back. That term repent um, is just think about it uh, as going, uh, taking a 180. Uh, you know, there's only two directions you can go in, you could be going in life. You can either be going towards God or away from God in life. There's no other direction in life. You're either going towards Jesus or away from him. And the idea of repentance is if you are going away from God, that you repent and turn back to start going towards God. And so he's calling his people, repent. And, and, he, and then he points out, you know, the, the character, the nature of God is that he's gracious, he's compassionate, he's slow to anger and abounding in love. Now, these are the characteristics of who God is. And then Joel points out that, you know, uh, the, th the way things are going right now, all through these first sections of his book, I mean, it's bad. I mean, the, the locust is attacking. There's a military advance coming. There's all these things happening. Life is bad. Life is harsh. But even in the midst of that, Joel points out it's not as bad as it could be. That even as this judgment is coming, that God is still holding back. He's not, he's not coming with everything he's got because that would destroy us. And so God is gracious even through his judgment of his people. And the other thing that Joel says, and this is crazy, he says, if you turn back, not only will God forgive you, but you know what? He might even bless you. 
Isn't that crazy? He said, not only will he forgive you, but he might even go above and beyond that and bless you with more. With some, that, that's not something that you deserve. It's not something you can say, well, I'll do this and then you give me that. He's saying, if you do this, God might go above and beyond and bless you. But I, I do think it's interesting. He doesn't say that will happen. He says that might happen. And I think that points out to that idea that if you, oh, if you just do this, then this will happen. And he says, no, we can follow the characteristics of who God is, but we can't control him. I remember sitting in a, a class, in a history class, and they were talking about uh, uh, Christianity, and they said, or Judaism, actually, and they were saying, you know, Judaism is such a different religion because uh, it was the only one where you could, they could control their God, because if they acted one way, then God could, uh, was forced to act another way, and I just remember sitting there shaking my head, be like, that is such a twisted view of the Bible, but I think that, you know, look to Joel right here, he says, no, we're not in control of God, our actions don't control God, God's in control of himself. And we just simply trust him, and we trust his nature. And so, one something that's, that's being pointed out is God is gracious in his judgment, and he's also quick to bless his people. He wants to bless his people. He's not promising it, but he's saying that is in his nature. Now, Joel does not share that, like, this big thing happened or this, like, big moment of the people coming to God. Uh, there's nothing in between verse 17 and 18 that says, and then they, they turned their eyes to the Lord or they repented just at that moment. There's nothing like that through, through Joel chapter 2. Um, but you'll notice uh, from 18 on, the tone shifts. There's a different kind of uh, feeling to the writing here. And so we're going to be reading, our primary text today is 18 to 27. That's where we're going to be. And as you, as you listen to this and as you read with me, uh, you'll notice that it's not necessarily anymore about just repent, repent, repent. But now it's a reaction to repentance, in a sense. And so this is what the word of the Lord says. It says, um, starting in verse 18, it says, Then the Lord was jealous for his land and took pity on his people. The Lord replied to them, I am sending you grain, new wine, and olive oil, enough to satisfy you fully. Never again will I make you an object of scorn to the nations, I will drive the northern horde far from you, pushing it to the parched and barren land. Its eastern ranks will drown in the Dead Sea, its western ranks will, uh, in the Mediterranean Sea, and its stench will go up. Its, uh, its smell will rise. Surely he has done great things. Do not be afraid, land of Judah. Be glad and rejoice. Surely the Lord has done great things. Do not be afraid, you wild animals, for the pastures and uh, wilderness are becoming green. The trees are bearing their fruit. The fig tree and vine yield their riches. Be glad, people of Zion. Rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you autumn rains because uh, he is faithful. He sends you an abundant of showers, both autumn and spring rains uh, as before. The threshing floor will be filled with your grain. The vats of, uh, will overflow with new wine and oil. I will repay you for the years uh, the locusts have eaten, the great locusts, the young locusts, the other locusts, the locust swarms, my great army that I sent among you. You will have plenty to eat until you are full, and you will, uh, you will praise the name of the Lord your God, who has worked wonders for you. Never again will my people be shamed. Then you will know that I am, Isra uh, then you will know that I am in Israel, 
and that I am the Lord your God, and that there is no other. Never again will my people be shamed. So a major shift here, from repent to repent to repent, to now God is going to do something. God is going to do something big. And so starting again, we're going to kind of walk through this section. Starting in verse 18, it says, Then the Lord was jealous for his land and took pity on his people. And so something we should take note of is that, that term, jealousy. You know, in today's context, I think a lot of times we use that word in a very negative um, sense. You know, when we hear that, oh, they're jealous. I think sometimes we can say that and we think that there's this like, um, like bad term, like that is never used in the right way. And so when we think of that, we think of like a, a boyfriend or a girlfriend who's extra jealous, right? They're like trying to check your phone or they're like asking you all the time, who's that? Who's that? Who's that? And that's like our view of jealousy. And so when you think of that and you say, God is jealous, you're like, wait, what? He's like checking on us all the time. Like he's, he's like scared. Like, and we have this idea of this like jealousy where it's like based out of fear, uh, based out of like losing you or, or like that, you know, all this, you know, negative feelings. Uh, but that's not necessarily the way that we should understand jealousy. There's, that's more of a, a jealousy that is based out of fear and not out of commitment. See, uh, jealousy can be used in a right way when two parties have committed to something uh, like a marriage. In a marriage, they commit to each other, and then there's this righteous jealousy that can be there. For instance, if a wife all of a sudden is going on dates with other men, the husband has a right to be jealous, right? If, uh, if a, a wife, she has the right to be jealous if her husband is flirting with every other girl around him, right? I don't think I need to go very much in depth. I think all of us get that pretty easily. Like, yeah, that is obviously wrong. That's a righteous jealousy. And that comes out of a commitment between these two people, these two parties, they've committed together, and there's this ownership of each other. There's this, uh, this commitment that I will be with you and you will be with me. Well, God is the one who has committed all the more to us than anything beyond that, right? Like he, he's committed all the way with us. He has made a covenant with his people. And so when he makes a covenant with his people, he is asking for a, a, a promise back, for a connection back. And so He's saying, I'm promising to you to be your God, and you will be my people. And the people of Israel had turned their back on their commitment to God, and so he was jealous for them. He would say, no, I want this. I want to be your number one. I want to be your God. I want to be your connection. I want to be your everything. And so you can't turn your back on me, and I will be jealous, and it's a righteous jealousy. See, unrighteous jealousy is one that is really just coveting. It's coveting. You want something that doesn't belong to you. You want something that you wish you had ownership of. Again, the boyfriend, the girlfriend kind of situation. You don't have any ownership of that person. There's no commitment here. Not real commitment. Not, not full commitment. And so there's a difference between unrighteous uh, jealousy and righteous jealousy. God has a righteous jealousy And we should take note of that with our own lives as well. To understand that for you and me, God is this same God yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He is still jealous for his people. He still wants your commitment. He still wants your attention. He still wants to be number one in each and every one of our lives. And he will not accept second place. He will not just be like, well, you know, just try to fit me in where you can. No, he's like... My, your, my connection with you, my commitment with, with you is that I'm all in. 
I'm all in with you, and so you, I'm asking that you be all in with me. That is what we find in the Gospels. Matthew chapter 10, verses 37 through 39, it says, Jesus is saying this to his crowd, to his followers. Anyone who loves the, their, uh, their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their sons or daughters more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Pretty clear terms there. Pretty clear that Jesus is saying, hey, I'm going to be your number one. I, want, I need to be your everything. And I, ha- I am committing my entire life to you by dying on the cross for you. And if you want to be worthy of that, you need to put me as your number one. More than your relationship with your father, your mother, your kids, yourself. More than you even love yourself. Love the Lord your God. That's heavy stuff. But that is his righteous place. Because what we will find out is only when we have God as our number one that we are actually able to live an abundant and new life in him. Everything else is going to be just disastrous if you try to place that in your number one. And we see that all the time. People will put money as their number one in their life. If I just have enough money in my life, then I'll be good. And, and you know, I'll tithe to the church and I'll try to give God a little bit here and there just as my number two. And all of a sudden you see them overwhelmed by work. All of a sudden work falls apart and they have an identity crisis and, and things just keep not working. You never quite have enough money because you're not honoring God first and allowing that job to be a two, three, four, wherever it needs to fall in line in your life. Same thing can happen in your family. You know, parents, it's easy for us to want to put our kids as our number one. Oh, I'm their parent. I should care for them. I should love them. Yeah, after you love for God and you can love your children. Your spouse, I committed to God that I will love my spouse. That should be my number one, under God. Yes, you're right. God is jealous. He does not share his throne with anyone. And so he says, make me your number one, and everything else will fall in line. That's what the Israelites had to figure out as well. And when we do that, the, the blessing that comes from having right thinking and right order in our minds is just amazing. God is so gracious through, his, through this time of helping us to realign these things so that we can live in right standing with him. Verse 19, it carries on. It says, the Lord replied to them, I am sending you grain, new wine, and olive oil, uh, enough to satisfy you fully. Never again will I make you an object of scorn to the nations. God is committing to them that the harm that they have faced is over. The hardship that they have been walking through is done. That he is now going to be establishing this new thing with them. And he is giving them these things. He's blessing them just as Joel said that he might. He carries on through verse 20. It says, uh, I will drive the northern horde far from you, pushing it into the parched and barren lands. Its eastern ranks will drown in the Dead Sea, the western ranks in the Mediterranean Sea, and its tinch will go up. Its smell will rise, and surely he has done great things. What I love the, about this is the tool of what God was going to use to judge the Israelite people now become the object of his, of his judgment. The thing that he was going to use to judge the Israelite people now becomes the, ra- get, this is the wrath of his judgment on them. 
And so it's amazing in life, you will notice this, that sometimes the things that God uses to wake us up is also the thing he takes away from you the quickest. Sometimes in life, we go through hard times, and that's what kind of wakes us up to our desperate need for God. And not to say that you go to God and everything becomes hunky-dory. It's not like, oh, life's just great once you're a Christian. No, it's still hard, but you all of a sudden can get through it because you have God working through you, empowering you, doing things through your life that you can make it through those hard things. Things that used to crush you, now you can make it through because God is enabling you to get through those things. And that's what the beautiful thing is. But the other thing to take note of is so God destroys these things that were going to be uh, destroying the Israelite people. He, he takes them away. He, he sends them to the desert. He drowns them. And it says this weird, weird thing. He says, the stench will go up. Its smell will rise. Like the place, it's going to be noticeable when God does something. And I think that's something that we can take note of as well. When God works in our lives, when God does something in your life, when he saves you, when, he, when he, you are, your eyes are open to what he has done through the cross, it will change you in noticeable ways. All of a sudden, you will be asked, what's different about you? What, what, what has changed? And, and you will be able to say, well, Jesus has got me through. I came to know who Jesus is. And I understand his saving, that he saved me by dying on the cross for my sins, and now I can live a new life for him. And and people will ask you because it's noticeable. When God works, he works in ways that it is, it is just evident that there's no other reason that this is happening other than him. I've seen that time and time again through my own life where, where I have said, man, I don't think this will happen. I don't think that God's, I don't think that I can make that happen more so. I don't think I can do that. And then I trust God with it and God gets me through it. And the only thing I can say is, yeah, that's God. He's the only one that made sure I... Well, I mean, currently past that class, right? Like, it's the only way that I got those assignments in. It's the only way that I was able to write that paper. Uh, you know, it's, it's those kind of things where, where I just trust in God, and God is getting me through. And for each one of us, it's different, whatever that looks like in your own life. But it, it is very evident when God's at work. People will take notice. The, the stench will be in the air that God is good. Because that's what it says at the end. Surely he has done a great thing. Carrying on, verses 21 through 25, it says, Do not be afraid, land of Judah. Be glad and rejoice. Surely the Lord has done great things. Do not be afraid, you wild animals, for the pastures in the wilderness are becoming green. The trees are bearing their fruit. The fig tree, the, the vine, uh, yield their rich, the riches. Be glad, people of Zion. Rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you autumn rains because he is faithful. He sends you an abundance of showers. Both autumn and spring rains are before you. The threshing floors will be filled with grain, and vats will overflow with new wine and oil. I will repay you for the years of the locusts have eaten, the great locusts, the young locusts, the other locusts, the locust swarms, my army, my great army that I sent among you. You will have plenty to eat until uh, you are full. And you will praise the name of the Lord your God, who has worked wonders for you. Never again will my people be shamed. Notice God is fully restoring everything that they had lost. He starts with the land. And he says, I'm blessing the land. It was being destroyed by the locusts, by this incoming army that was coming. And, and it was being ravaged. 
There was going to be nothing left. And he says, I'm healing that land. And then he speaks to the wildlife and these animals. I'm blessing you as well. I'm blessing you. And now you will have vegetation to eat. Because actually that's what would happen when locusts would come and swarm in. The bugs would eat everything. And there would be starvation, not just for the people, but for the wildlife as well. And so he's blessing the animals and saying, don't worry, livestock. Don't worry, wildlife. I'm blessing you as well. And then he blesses the people of Israel. He says, I'm blessing you. Your livelihood will be restored. You will be able to, to reclaim everything that you have lost. God is restoring everything that was lost, not because he has to, but because he wants to bless his people. He wants to bless them. I think that's something that we should also understand. God is so much more interested than just forgiving you of your sins. Now, you might hear that and say, wait, what? What did you say? God is so much more interested than just forgiving your sins. See, I think there's this wrong thinking that's out there. That some people think, well, I become a Christian and he forgives me of my sins and that's it. The relationship's done. Signed, and sealed, delivered, right? I I am free now. Well, yes, that's the starting line. God has so much more in store for you with your life. Uh, Christianity is not just about you praying a prayer and then you not going to hell. No, it it is so much more. It's about you living uh, the, the life that God has for you right now in abundance now so that you can live for him now and live a life that is is going to highlight what you're going to be living like in heaven. He wants to work with you now to start living as the new creation that you are becoming. He saves you now, and then he walks with you for the rest of your life. It's not just forgive me and then I'm out. It's forgive me and now we continue to walk together. And this is what Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, where he says, Therefore, anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. Uh, a new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. When we are saved, when we understand that Jesus has died on the cross for you, for your sins, that, that we, we, when we believe, our faith is, is that we understand that our sins died with Jesus on that cross. We say, Jesus, please forgive me. And he can actually grant us forgiveness. But what's amazing, and you'll see this all throughout the Gospels, is that when God gets involved with someone's life, when he gets involved with their situation, you'll notice all throughout the Gospels, he does this. He gets involved in their, with their problem, their situation. And then he, he almost always ends this way. He says, now go and sin no more. Now go and sin no more. Now the only way that can be done is if we are made in as a new creation. Because the old us is just going to keep messing up the exact same way. The only way that we can fulfill that commandment that he gives us is by living in this new life, into this new reality as a new creation in Jesus. So God is, is about restoring us. He restores the land. He restores the wildlife. He restores the people, and he blesses them. And I want you to understand that that's what he wants to do with each and every one of us. When you have God as your number one, when you understand that he has forgiven you for your sins, he now wants to call you into a new relationship with him where you are empowered by the Holy Spirit to do the thing he's calling you to do. Share the good news with people, to live a new abundant life for him, honoring him as your number one. 
wherever that is that he has you. The last two verses of this section say, You will have plenty to eat until you are full, and you will praise the name of the Lord your God, who has worked wonders for you. Never again will my people be shamed. Then you will know that I am in Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and that there is no other. Never again will my people be shamed. These final promises that God is giving the Israelites is his presence, that he will be with his people, that he will walk with his people, that they will know that he is their God, that he will dwell with his people, and that shame will not be a part of their story anymore because they will be following God. What's amazing is this is fulfilled then, and then we see another fulfillment when Jesus comes. When he comes, then all of a sudden we see that, that he is walking amongst his people, and he is walking without shame, and that is what he grants his followers. He says, follow me, and, and they, they do so without shame, without, without holding back, and he forgives them, and he restores them, and he calls them to more constantly. And that's the amazing thing about this table that we we're about to partake in here soon, is that was this moment. At this table, originally, when Jesus sat down with his 12 best friends, with the disciples, he fed them. And he fed them, and, and they had their full. They had their fill, both with their, with their stomachs, but also with their hearts and their souls and their minds. They had their fill from Jesus, and they were never hungry. And they were never put to shame. Because Jesus was there with them and he loved them. And so I want us to have that same attitude as well as we get ready to approach this table. To understand that we can approach this without shame, without worry. To know, yeah, we're not going to maybe have the full of our stomach, but our hearts and our souls may be filled with awe and wonder of what Jesus has done. The fact that he died on the cross for us so that we could be a new creation for him. Because the reality is... That story didn't end with just his death. Three days later, he rose again. And he walked around, and, and he shared meals with hundreds of people. He walked with hundreds of people. They, hundreds of people had experiences with Jesus after he had rose. And then after a while, he ascended into heaven. And that's where he is today. He sits at the right hand of God the Father. And at that time, he also sent the Holy Spirit down to earth to dwell with all of his people, now starting a new relationship with his people, where we can have connection with God who dwells within us. So as we approach this supper today, we should understand that we are joining in remembrance of what Jesus has done on that cross, of what he did in that original table, that he paid the debt for our sins and for our lives and provided a way for us to be made anew in him. Our trust is in his work, but also our trust is in the hope and in the fact that he is here with us today, and also that this bread and this cup are pledges and foretastes of the feast of love in which we shall partake when the kingdom has fully come, and when we shall behold him without shame. I want to invite us into a time of, of prayer um, as we get ready for communion. And it's this, uh, this kind of uh, read and response uh, thing that um, I've been taking a class on communion. And so I saw this and I thought this would be really cool to do. 
And so um, I will read the pastor, or really should say pastor-to-be, um, but I'll read the pastor part, uh, and then you guys can read the people's part, and then I have a prayer that I want to read with you guys, and the Spanish will be on the uh, screen, and then English I'll just be reading out. But uh, will you guys read with me as we get ready to, to share in communion? It says, the Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord. Let us pray. Holy and right it is in our joy and duty to give thanks to you at all times and in all places, O Lord, our creator, almighty and everlasting God. You created the heavens with all of its hosts, the earth with all its plenty, and you have given us, a, uh, given us life and being and preserved us by your providence. But you have shown us the fullness of your love in sending into the world your son, Jesus Christ, the eternal word made flesh for us and for our salvation, for the, pres- uh, for the precious gift of this mighty savior who has reconciled us to you. We praise you and bless you, O oh God. Amen.